WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader, a national litigation firm representing law firms in malpractice suits, ethics investigations, and business matters. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. This is The Author's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Author's Voice, we'll hear Joshua Ferris read his story, The Abandonment, from the August 1st, 2016 issue of the magazine. Joshua Ferris is the author of three novels, including The Unnamed and To Rise Again at a Decent Hour. He has been publishing stories in The New Yorker since 2008. Now here's Joshua Ferris. The Abandonment When he returned to the bagel place, there was the usual line, but his hope dwindled with every face that wasn't hers. He went around the block for the dozenth time. After that, he came untethered and wandered south. Heedless at the corners, he was nearly hit by a cab. He turned right for no reason, and on that block, as he walked, some invisible industrial fan seemed to whir violently, sending up trash. Suddenly, before his eyes, there was an aircraft carrier. There was motion and transition everywhere, the urgent, churning city, the cry of a siren fading around the block. At the Empire State Building, they tried to get him to take a tour. He and his wife had married in Cuba, by way of Nicaragua, four years earlier, long before the embargo was lifted. They had thrilled to the risk, the style, of kicking off their days under stay-at-old matrimony in such rebel fashion. There was a priest and a punto band and the beach and the stars and the northern wind, and everything about that night was emblematic of how they hoped to shape the years. Now they would divorce. Well, so what? Sooner or later, everyone got divorced. Knowing it was useless, she was gone, gone, he threw his cell phone into a trash can. When he came to his senses and returned for it, he searched and searched, but he had the wrong street corner. Cyclists yelled at him on the Brooklyn Bridge. He found himself gripping something with fierce resolve. Looking down, he discovered a glossy postcard advertising two-for-one drinks during happy hour at a gentleman's club. He tried putting it away, but there was no back pocket. He was wearing his gray linen pajama pants, uh, what did it matter? It was over. Nothing mattered. He had known better than to marry. He'd seen his parents hurt each other and leave, and hurt and leave others, the casual lovers, the step-parents. But he gave it a shot anyway, and it ended pretty much as he imagined, with him wandering the streets in tears. It was no surprise where he wound up. He hoped to find her there. How he loved her, her face, her smile. He took a deep breath and entered the lobby. Who is it? she asked through an ancient intercom. It's Nick, he said, and there followed the longest pause of his life. He had second thoughts. Was he presentable enough? Could he make the right impression? Another minute went by before she buzzed him in. The elevator, an old cat hibernating on some upper floor, rattled to life when he called it and roared down to him. The doors opened, 
and he stepped forward with his head down, and a second later stepped back with his head up as a family of four charged out. The father first, with the stride of a bandleader, then an excitable boy in a Viking hat, blasting enemies with a caulk gun, then a German shepherd, then an older brother wearing athletic knee-highs and a soccer jersey as long as a gown, followed at last by Mom, stuck with her rumpled flannel shirt and sweatpants, in the wrong family, in the wrong season, crying out for Bill to be careful with the tomatoes. Oh, my God, she said, and stopped and stared. They had switched places. He was inside the elevator, and she was looking at him from the lobby. I thought that was you. She was gawking. She was tongue-tied. You are just awesome. Thank you, he said, pressing the button to hurry the door along. I mean it. I just love you. Thanks. She finally came to her senses, and a hand shot up to her mouth. Oh, I'm so embarrassed, she said. The door began to close. She waved. Bye. On his way up, he put the family out of mind and returned to thinking about her, her face, her smile. He stepped off the elevator, and there she was, on the phone, propping the apartment door open. One strap of her denim overalls hung off her shoulder, and when she saw him, she smiled happily. Then he neared, and her happiness faded. She palmed the mouthpiece. Is something wrong, she said. She's gone. Who's gone? My wife, he said. She frowned, waved him in, and hurried to get off the phone. He moved inside, out of the way of the closing door. How many times in the past had he stood like this, on the brink, with the merciless eyes of a child? He took in the Santa Claus welcome mat many months out of season, the wicker basket against the far wall spilling over with sandals and tennis shoes, the lacquered console table on which the house keys and loose change had been tossed, and all the many colors and vibes and impressions and the hundred other ways these perfect strangers chose to live. On, astonishingly, six other occasions, when his parents met other people and fell in love and married and ordered the instant integration of two families' lives, their laundry and their lore, and, to often disastrous effect, their DNA, the Morgans followed by the Donardos and the Teahans on his mother's side, the Winklows, the Andersons, and that insufferable Lee clan on his father's. He had stood like this, appraising and rejecting, and wanting nothing more than to return to the bunk bed in his first room, where all the linens and the wall shadows had been under a single steady proprietorship. For as soon as his parents were married and moved in and all the painful adjustments were made, they were divorcing again and moving out. I'm sorry, she said. This will just take another minute. Are you alone, he asked. She raised a finger and looked away as she wrapped things up with customer service. A different stranger might have fled, but as he was easy in unfamiliar surroundings, one of the virtues of his childhood, he made himself at home and casually took in the state of the apartment. It was a mess. There were toys everywhere, 
puzzle pieces communing with cereal flakes under the table, and a pink-knit blanket on the hardwood floor, which she presently swooped down on with furious efficiency, pocketing the cell phone at last, and folded as they approached the door leading into the next room. I can't believe it, she was saying. It's really you. It's really me, he said. Were you painting? Oh, trying to. She put her finger to her lips. We have to go through the baby's room to get to the living room, she whispered. It's the crazy way this apartment was designed. Try not to wake her. More family clutter awaited them in the living room. The table lamp was on in daylight, and there were cups on top of coasters. Wheeled toys on leads had been dropped mid-pull. A box of crayons had fallen in front of the sofa and fanned out around a carton of dried-out diaper wipes. She hurried to clear a spot for him, heaping stray items on top of a toy bin. He sat down and came up holding a yo-yo. She plucked it from his hand and, before sitting down next to him, gave it an underhand toss and hit the top of a beanbag. So what happened? she asked. She went out this morning for bagels, he said. We have this routine on Sunday mornings. One of us runs out for bagels and the newspaper and we spend the morning in bed. Oh my God, she said. People still do that? But she never came home. I called and I called. She never picked up. She didn't reply to my texts. I waited. I thought maybe she was taking a walk, you know, to clear her head or whatever. But I don't think so. Did you guys have a fight or something? This has been a long time coming, he said. I'm sorry to hear that, she said. Marriage is so hard. And who knows, maybe she is out on a walk. How long has it been? Four hours, he said, maybe five. That's kind of a long walk, she said. He had met her at the Arts Fund annual gala in a DJ'd ballroom in the Paramount Hotel in Midtown. Two grown women in diapers and pigtails were led around the crowd on a single leash before dinner, and men in mascara shook hands with spiky rings on all ten fingers. They were seated next to each other at a table that included Stephanie Savage and Ryan McGinley. She was Calaruso's sometime assistant, there that night to see that the great man ate his soup. During appetizers, Nick learned that she painted in her spare time. By dessert, she was showing him thumbnails of her most recent work and promising to watch his series if she could find the time to stream it on Netflix. It was not one of the shows that her friends were always telling her she just had to watch. After the thanks were doled out and the speeches concluded, Calaruso demanded to go home, and she went off to find him a car. The enormous painter, to whom Nick had not been introduced, turned to him and said, with tasteless relish, The poor girl. She's about to burn her life to the ground, and she doesn't even know it. What do you mean? Calaruso's eyes got wider and gleamed with mischief. The husband's grown fat. An hour later, with Calaruso gone, she suddenly confessed that it had been a little more than a million years since she was last out of the house, and she had overdone it. She had had too much to drink and needed to get home. Let me drop you off, he said. No, it's okay. I can take the subway. 
Don't be silly, he said. I have a car waiting outside. He had hoped that they would continue their conversation, but she fell asleep and slept straight through the sudden stops, the thundering starts, the potholes exploding beneath them like mortar bombs. Waiting for her at home, he imagined, was everything anyone could ever want, and she no longer saw much appeal in a stranger. She was above that now. He admired her for it. Her only vice these days? Stolen sleep. When the car pulled up to her building, he woke her gently, and she opened her eyes and took a deep breath. For a split second, she probably wondered where on earth she was and how she had got there. I'm sorry, she said. How long have I been asleep? Since midtown, more or less. Oh, I'm so sorry. Don't be, he said. Thank you, she said. You're very sweet. She said goodnight and stepped out of the car. That was four days ago. I knew it was coming, he said to her now. I predicted it. Eventually she would leave me. She had to. Day to day, things were just too... too... what? Awful. Do you know what she does? He asked incredulously. First of all, there are flowers. She brings flowers into the house, just to have them around. Then when they die, instead of just tossing them, she hangs them up to dry and then takes the petals off and puts the petals in these Japanese bowls and then places the bowls here and there around the house. She waited. Who does that? He asked her. She laughed in agreement. I don't know, she said. I take it you guys don't have kids. No. Nobody's drying flowers around here, she said. Dried flowers wouldn't make it past breakfast. And then she makes everything smell nice. There are pleasant little pockets everywhere you go. A little pocket of lemon here in the foyer. A little sachet of lavender near the bathtub. A little candle of verbena in the kitchen. Do you know what that's like? We have pockets like that around here, she said, but of rotten milk and urine, usually, she laughed. I love your apartment, he said. She looked around, mock startled. Why, she asked. She laughed again. No, it, it is a nice apartment. It's just too small for us. But rent is so crazy. I love how lived in it is. Oh, it's lived in all right. Sometimes it feels like Homer and Langley decided to have children. She picked up a squeeze toy for a child, a pet, and made it squeak before tossing it after the yo-yo. This is also where you work? Every free minute of every day, she replied. You're very driven. No, she said, just terrified. Of what? Of never finishing another painting, of losing myself to motherhood of going completely out of my fucking mind. I'm so sorry to barge in on you like this, he said. You're probably trying to get some work done while the baby naps, and here I show up without even calling. Please, she said, I'm happy to see you. You have a nice home, he said, so full of life. Nothing at all like my apartment. Where it's clean, you mean, and everything smells nice, and it's quiet, and you can hear yourself think? She laughed at herself or perhaps for his sake, to reassure him. But the mirth drained from her face soon enough, and then she looked around again at the disarray. From the outside, she said, it must look like a pretty good life, like a fulfilled life, which it is. But 
when you're plunked down in the middle of it, sometimes it just feels like time fleeing. I love you, he said. She pulled back. Pardon? No, just this life, I mean, your apartment. The mess, even. I love the... I really love rooms like this one, where you can practically hear the children playing and the washing machine going, and you can smell the banana bread baking in the oven. You really feel the love in this room, that's all I meant. You and your husband have three kids, is that right? She nodded. Where is he now? But she had gone silent. She was the real thing. He could not simply say, I love you, and look at her until she melted. Caloruso was wrong. She had resolve and self-respect. She would not just run off with the latest man who flattered her, as his mother had done, or tape the children up for transport in a used box to test the advantages of a different address. Listen, I I'm sorry, he said. I didn't mean to give you the wrong impression. Naomi, that's my wife, she's not some insane person who needs to have everything perfectly in place all the time. Our apartment gets plenty messy. But let me tell you something she does do without fail every day. She makes the bed. Now, I wasn't taught to make the bed every day. Some of my step-parents hated that about me, and I didn't make the bed on purpose half the time just to get back at them. But then I got married, and for some reason, I'd look at the bed Naomi had made, and I'd see, you know, not kindness, not whatever. I'd see spite. I'd think she'd made the bed deliberately to criticize me or to prove how much more considerate she was than me or some other stupid thing, and I resented her for it. For making the bed. We'd get into these fights. I'd bring up the bed. She'd look at me like, what are you talking about? What does making the bed have to do with anything? And then one day, it just dawned on me. She's not making the bed to get back at me. She's making the bed because she likes a made bed. She wants our lives, our shared life together, to be pleasant. I'd never thought about that before, the fact that I had a shared life. You should have kids, she said. Then you know it's shared. I was telling you about how my apartment smells good, he said. Well, when I was a kid, right, and into my teens, and into my twenties even, I was surrounded, this will sound weird now that I'm about to say it out loud, by all of these strange people's smells, the different odors of different families. I mean, the soaps they had in their bathrooms, their coat closets, their family recipes, the breath their sofas let out when you sat down on them, and then the grosser things, how they left the bathroom, what they gave off when you got too close. It wasn't always repugnant, just foreign, and I didn't want the foreign. I wanted the familiar. That's what family is, what's familiar. And every new house I went to, every new family I joined, they had all these scents that weren't familiar. I could no longer say what would have been familiar. I just knew that it was nowhere present in those houses. So when Naomi and I got married, and I had to adjust to a whole new set of scents, and, you know, things, possessions, wall hangings, whatever, I was just like, no. What was the point of being married if I just had to keep adjusting? I wouldn't do it. I refused. In my head, I mean. Those were Naomi's things, not mine. What was mine? 
I had no idea, really. I just knew, in my head, I would not give in. So we fought. We fought like cats and dogs. Until one day I realized that her sense had become my sense. They were my sense. This was my life. Why was I sabotaging it? I finally knew what was mine. He stopped talking. She narrowed her eyes and looked at him intently. Huh, she said. Something in his monologue had provoked her. She looked away. She even stood up, crossed her arms, and started to pace back and forth. She seemed to have forgotten entirely about his blurting out that he loved her. She came to a stop and said, It's the exact opposite with me. How so? Well, I used to have my own odors. That's a funny way of putting it. You know what I mean, my own life. But it's the kid's life now. It's the kid's odors. They've blotted everything else out. God only knows what I smell like now. He expected her to laugh, but she didn't. It wasn't meant to be a joke. Do you know how hard it is some days just to find time to take a shower and put on lotion? Will I ever take a bath again? I don't know. Will I ever smell a perfume again? Will I ever paint something that's worth a damn? What does your husband say, he asked. About what? He wasn't sure and shrugged. Your painting? Your desire to take a bath? He and I have our ups and downs, she said, like any couple. Returning to the sofa, she folded the white onesie that had suddenly appeared in her hands, setting it down absent-mindedly on a pile of children's books. Anyway, she said. It's worse now, he said. I might have been better off never figuring it out. Figuring what out? What's mine? That's worse than not knowing? Perfect terror, he said. Why? Because now I know what there is to lose. He had returned to the fact of Naomi's abandonment and all the loss he had suffered when she hadn't come back to the apartment that morning. It's more than just a made bed, he said. We talked, the two of us. We shared things. No one in my family ever talked. They shouted. They slammed doors, and then they filed for a divorce. My mother had one of her wedding receptions in a McDonald's. That's how casual these things were. But Naomi and me, we made dinner together every night I wasn't on set. We planned things. We did things. And now that's over. Over completely. But you loved her. I did, yes, very much. I never used to live for my life. I lived to prove something and to get revenge, but... My life was a small, mean thing. Then, somewhere along the way, it became everything. That was terrifying. But beautiful, too, she said, fingering her wedding ring. Not sure I do that. You don't live for your life? I don't know what I live for, she said. I live to neglect the other half of things. What's the other half of things? Well, for instance, when I'm painting, I'm not taking care of my kids, and when I'm taking care of my kids, I'm not painting. That pretty much guarantees that I don't do either very well, and every night I sort of hate myself for it. 
And your husband, he said? What do you neglect when you're with him? Calaruso, for one, she said. And other things, friends, museums, life, she laughed. He doesn't like museums? It isn't that he doesn't like them, she said. It's that we never go to them. If we do anything together, it's watch TV. You probably don't watch TV, do you? Oh, that's a stupid question. You're on TV. But you know what I mean. With your wife, when you're both tired, as the thing two people do, to be together. I know what you mean, he said. But no, Naomi preferred to do other things. Dinners, plays. She was with me on Corsica last year when I was filming this absolutely terrible independent movie. And I remember we got out of the car and walked down these ancient crumbling stairs to the beach. And we had this long swim. But when we came back, the car was surrounded by all of these wild boars. Rutting like crazy. It was really funny. But scary too, you know. This man from Marseille began honking his horn and somehow led them all away. We'd still be there to this day if it weren't for him. She didn't seem to know how to respond to this story. Sounds romantic, she said. Romantic? I just mean Corsica. Oh, I guess it was, he said. But, you know, looking back, it wasn't the travel we did. It was the fact that we were polite to each other. Where I come from, no one was ever polite. If I'm being honest, she taught me how to live. This is a mortal woman we're talking about, right? He laughed. Oh, look, he said, she had her flaws, trust me. Like? He gave the question some thought. She doesn't have nearly the sense of humor you do, he said. Or the richness. Richness? He didn't know how to answer, and the question hung in the air. She got to her feet again, walked to the middle of the room, and with her back to him, stood thinking. She sounds amazing, she said at last, and you should fight for her. Wherever she is, find her and fight for her, for your sake. But it's too late, he said. We exhausted something, working through it. You try to make it work, but something gets ruined along the way. I tried her patience too many times. There's nothing I could say now, and nothing I could do. You have to beg her. You have to vow to change and then change. I have changed completely. She just doesn't see it. To her, I'll always be that bratty kid who couldn't bring himself to make the necessary adjustments. Do you know how easy it is to get pigeonholed by the person you're married to and then you just can't get out of it? Oh, God, yes, she said. That doomed us. We were always going to be the same people to each other, no matter how much we changed. He gestured around the apartment. I never considered her capable of any of this, for instance. Any of what? she asked. The mess? The madness? No, no, he said. The, the nurture, the wholeness of your lives. How there's goodness behind every little thing in sight. Your husband must feel the same way. Oh, sure, she said. He can't shut up about it. He's always romancing me for everything he finds on the living room floor. Are you kidding me? The minute I walked in, he said, I thought, 
Here is how life is best lived. Everywhere you look, there's a sign of life. And you created it. It's amazing. It's like, like a garden in here. No, hear me out, he said when she had raised her eyebrows skeptically. And what you are growing here and there and over there are little moments. And the little moments make your memories. And the memories make a life that can't be taken away from you by anyone or anything. Not other people's fickleness, not even death. In the long run, you know, that's better than bowls of dried flowers or whatever. I don't know, she said. I'm pretty intrigued by those bowls. When he had finished, she came back to the sofa, curled one leg under her and sat down, looking at him with, he thought, a sexy pucker to her mouth. Eyes narrowed and held his gaze a beat longer than was strictly necessary. And what about love? she asked. Love is everywhere in this house, he said, everywhere. I don't mean that kind of love, she said. Don't be seduced by the children's toys. What do you mean? What do you mean, what do I mean? I mean love. I mean, what do I mean? Okay, it's like this, she said. Do you see that toy over there? It's some kind of caped lion, but also a digital clock. I'm not really sure what the hell it is, to be honest. But when Micah, that's my oldest, when Micah first got that caped lion clock thing, it was everything to him. I mean, it was the most precious thing on earth. He went around all day hugging it to his chest. But now he never plays with it, ever. You know what he plays with? She plucked off the floor a spent roll of toilet paper with a twisted rubber band taped to it. This. She waggled the toilet roll, and the strap of her overalls fell off her shoulder again. And that's what my husband has become, to me, and what I have become to my husband. He and I both remember, sort of, way back before kids, that we had something. But in all honesty now, after the kids go to bed, we go right back to playing with our toilet rolls. Oh, my God, she said. I can't believe that just came out of my mouth. And what is your husband's toilet roll? His iPhone, she said without hesitation. And yours? Whatever I'm painting at the moment, she said. You worry about losing everything. I worry about wanting to hold on to it. Some days, I just don't want to hold on to it. You're unhappy, he said. She was forced to look away, but turned back quickly and looked at him as if she were seeing him there for the first time. How did you get in here? she asked him, smiling. Did I let you in? He remained still, staring at her with his chin lowered, a faint smile curling the ends of his mouth. It must be those eyes, she said more quietly than before. Those eyes are hard to say no to. So she was susceptible after all. She had not fallen asleep on their ride to Brooklyn because she was above it all. She was not what the state of her apartment had suggested, a mother through and through. Calaruso had not been wrong.
His disappointment in her was sharp but brief and bound up with excitement. He reached across the sofa and slowly lifted the denim strap to her shoulder. Maybe I should be going, he whispered. She nodded. Maybe you should. Neither of them moved. I can't seem to bring myself to. Seems you can't. The truth is, I want to stay. Why, she whispered, is it all the sippy cups? He smiled. No. The wide selection of little golden books. It's you, he said. It's this. It's all of this. I'm flattered. I'm serious. But you're still in love with your wife, she said. Aren't you? He would always love her, he admitted, but it had been so much worse in days past when he drifted, crying, down dead industrial blocks and strangers removed their earbuds to ask him if he was all right. Oh, yes, it had been much worse. This morning was an afterthought, a faint-hearted performance, the death rattle. And when he came to his senses, what had he done? He had walked straight over the bridge to her. This is the life I want, he said. I want you. Are you sure it's me, she asked, and not some fantasy you've constructed around my life? Then he told her that there was a woman who kept recurring in his dreams. She shows up every few months, always while I'm in transit. I'm on a boat or an airplane, and she just happens to be seated next to me. We talk, and then she looks at me, and I wake up. I'm always sad to wake up. I've had this dream for twenty-five years, ever since I was a kid, and I've always just believed that she was a figment of my imagination. Until I sat down next to you at dinner four nights ago. We weren't in transit. I drove you home. Does that count? I'm counting it. And do you remember the name of the painting Calaruso auctioned that night? Across the waters to San Tropez. While we were on the bridge, a favorite song of mine came on the radio, an old song called San Tropez. Hey, I know that song, she said. She sang the first two lines. That one? And you're leading me down to the place by the sea, he sang. That's the one. They shared another look, and then she kissed him. After the first few tentative kisses, she crossed a leg over his lap and straddled him. When they broke off, she looked at him from only a few inches away. Oh, my God, she said. And she suddenly threw her head back and laughed. This isn't happening. Yes, he said, it is. They kissed again and afterward began a series of goodbyes, for her husband would be home from the park soon with the boys and the dog in tow, and everyone would be hot and cranky and in need of a snack. And it would be better, she said to him, thinking vaguely of the future, that he not be seen, not known, yet. They had every intention of getting up from the sofa, 
but remained there, kissing more freely now. In between kisses, he shared with her more of his childhood and recommended that no one act rashly for the sake of the children. No, yeah, of course. No one's going to, uh, no one's doing anything stupid, she said. But listen. What? Well, I don't know, she said. I just, I just know that I have to paint, that's all. Of course you do, he said. Always. We'll make sure of it. Another ten minutes passed, and now it was imperative that she send him on his way. But they stole another minute, and when they left off kissing again, she backtracked, saying it could never work out between them because he was used to an apartment that smelled nice, where you could read the paper on a Sunday morning and not a pigsty where toys were scattered everywhere. But I can't live like that anymore, he said. It's too precious. I need a good mess. That's too bad, she said, because I wouldn't mind a little verbena in my life. Oh, well, that I can do, he said. Then it was time. They had to get up. And four daring and exquisite minutes later, they did. Holding hands this time, they returned through the baby's room to the front door. The baby stirred, then let out a cry. And then it didn't matter how carefully she shut the door behind her. Nap time was over. Shit, she said. Go, he said. Take care of him. I'll see myself out. It's a her, she said. And they kissed the final time. He was halfway out the door when she called him back and hurried across the room. Maybe I should just tell him, she said. Who? My husband, she said. Doesn't he deserve to know? What would you tell him? She thought about it. I don't know, she said, and caught herself. What's even happening? Nothing, he said. And everything. Maybe you should, I don't know, whatever you think is best. She leaned into him to steal one final kiss. Then he left the apartment and walked toward the elevator, which disgorged an unhappy man, two hot and sullen boys, and a Jack Russell terrier panting from the heat. He had arrived there in the depths of despair, but was leaving now wordless with joy. At the station, he had to jump the turnstile. Bystanders wondered what luck had made his day, even if he might begin to talk to himself and laugh out loud and scare them right off the train. He was, after all, wearing pajama bottoms. Looking down at them, he was suddenly worried that the farther away he got, the more she would wonder what on earth had possessed her to kiss a man who had showed up out of the blue in his pajamas. He would have liked to text her, or even call her for some reassurance, and to recapitulate every sentiment of the past hour, and then, as the conversation meandered, to exchange the bolder impressions that each must have of the other, which could come spilling out now that they had broken through to a new level of intimacy. Ah, what happiness! To have found her at last, someone who would never leave. But he couldn't text or call, because he had thrown away his phone. The doorman loaned him a spare key, but it must not have been the right one or something, because 
Though it slid inside the lock just fine, it wouldn't turn. He was about to give up when he heard footsteps, and a few seconds later the door opened from the inside. Surprised, he stood up straight. Oh, he said, you're home. She turned on high-arched feet and padded away soundlessly, disappearing into the bedroom. He stood there a minute with the door open, feeling the cool, settled calm of the rooms filling up with dusk. He turned back to the door and shut it. He stood there a minute longer. Finally, he shuffled across the apartment and stood on the brink of the bedroom, looking in. She was packing an overnight bag that lay open on the bed. You thought I had left, she said. He nodded, looking sheepish. But you see now I didn't. She dropped a camisole on the bed and held up her arms. How many times, Nick? I really did think you were gone this time, he said. I don't doubt that, she said. She turned to the dresser, but only to stand there at an open drawer, stirring things around uncertainly. You're not leaving now, are you? What choice do I have? We've talked about this and talked about it, she said, sounding tired. I thought we were making progress. We were, he said. We are. And your cell phone? He shook his head. You call that progress? She shook her head. I ran into Trish at the bagel place, she explained. Charles is going back to Texas. No one will say a word to Marie about the baby. And then she tells me that she and Teddy are getting married and she wants me to be her maid of honor. Before I know it, we're in that little bridal shop around the corner. I just lost track of time. That's it, Nick. That's all. I tried to call you. My phone was here. I kept texting you. I was just running out for bagels. Exasperated, she sat down on the bed. Feeling stupid, he drifted away. Not long after, from the guest bedroom, he saw the light go on in the kitchen. He heard her taking things down from the shelves. The refrigerator door opened and closed. A minute later, she began to chop. When something hit the pan and sizzled, he pictured her running her finger down the length of the blade, sliding the garlic into the hot oil. He was reminded of what, in fact, was best in life. It was Naomi's garlic crackling, the smell filling the apartment, and the bottle of wine she would open. That beat all else, the garlic and the wine, hands down. Could she blame him for going out of his mind at the thought of it ending? He walked to the kitchen and stood in the doorway gloomily and waited for her to speak. Who was it this time? she asked finally, without looking up. He shrugged. Someone I met at the gala. She lifted her head. To look at him, she had to move the hair out of her eyes, which she did awkwardly, with the wrist of the hand holding the knife. You just abandoned me, Nick, she said. I never know where you've gone. I never really go anywhere, he said. You drive me so crazy, she said. But she sighed and the fight seemed to leave her body. Still shaking her head in dismay, 
she allowed a little smile. Without another word, he stepped into the kitchen and pulled down his own knife and took up an onion. He chopped diligently. He chopped for his life. And by the time dinner was ready, all had been forgiven. That was Joshua Ferris reading his story, The Abandonment. He was included in The New Yorker's 20 Under 40 fiction issue in 2010. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps, available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Ben Lerner reads Woven, Sir by John Berger. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. The weekly audio edition of The New Yorker is available on iTunes or audible.com. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing the author's voice on iTunes. Our theme music is by Jordan Batiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. The author's voice is produced by Alex Barron and Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 